0: to Acts chapter 9 as we continue in our series in the book of Acts called Missio Dei which is Latin for the mission of God and this morning uh, by the grace of God we'll be covering chapter 9 verses 1 through 9 and I know you're thinking well he's slowing back down again all right I've been Taking bigger chunks, but uh, this is a, a critical and pivotal passage in the book of Acts. We'll take our time this morning, and we'll build on it when we d- dive back in, into it again together. But uh, the title of the message this morning is one of the more, more original titles. So you make sure you write this one down. It's real clever: the conversion of Saul, part one. <laughs> All right, <clears throat> the conversion of, part, and you know what part one means? There's going to be a part, and there might be a part. Yes, and you've known me. I've actually had, uh, in Genesis, I think, with Abraham and Isaac, there was like part five. Um, And that means I have way too much to say about these wonderful texts. But I'm going to read our passage of Scripture this morning, verses one through nine, and encourage you to follow along with me, then we'll go to the Lord in prayer, and then look at this passage together. Now, beginning in verse uh, one of chapter nine of Acts, now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that he found, if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. So Saul got up from his ground, and though his eyes were opened, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Let's pray. Now, Lord, we ask you to do again what only you can do, or that is to take your word and to plant it deep within the recesses of our hearts. Or that you would bring conviction where it needs to be conviction. Lord, you would bring comfort where we need comfort. Lord, you'd bring conversion where there needs to be conversion, even as we see in this passage with Saul. Lord, we trust you with this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this past Friday, many people uh, remembered and uh, commemorated or, uh, uh, what happened in our country 14 years ago on September 11th. I think some people are calling it Freedom Day. It's not necessarily a national holiday that I know of. Is it on the Hallmark calendar yet? Okay, then it's not a national holiday yet, but it will be, uh, maybe. But the, the Freedom Day, and when we remember, many of us remember where we were when we first heard the news about the plane going into one of the Twin Towers, and maybe even the second one, and we heard about the other plane crashing into the to Pentagon, and the other plane crashing in, in the fields of Pennsylvania, and we remember that because it was such a significant event in the history of our country. It was scary. I still remember where I was in in Springfield, Illinois, in our basement. Yes, we have basements in Illinois, okay? And I was down. That's where my study was, in the cold basement. It was awesome. No windows, nothing to distract me. and just studying. And John L. comes running down the stairs. She said, just crying. We're under attack. We're under attack. Who's attacking us? You know, and we had a TV downstairs. We turned it on. We saw all this happening. And just... It it, it was sobering as I think back about that, um, what was going on in our country. Never anything like that had happened on on our soil before, at least that devastating. Um, And that day will be remembered in our country as it changed a lot of the way that we live. It changed the way that security was handled, not only in airports. I know some of you are still upset about that. um, But security all over our country. And uh, um, some probably for some good. But a lot of fear with people. It changed, the, it changed our economy. And the effects of that still affect our economy today, what happened on that day. So that day was huge, and we will remember that because it was a significant event. Others remember, not as many here, will remember what happened on December seventh, 1941 at Pearl Harbor. Um, and the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor and uh, took out many of our aircraft carriers and battleships that were docked there. Uh, it was a significant day that changed much of the course of history in many ways, especially for the United States, and at that time, the whole world, because that's when the United States entered into World War II, officially. Uh, and there are many other events that people remember as significant throughout our world. You go to other countries, and there are events that happen in those countries that, that they celebrate every single year because it was such a significant event that had such an impact on that country. They continue to celebrate those days and those events. But the most important and most significant event in all of history, in all the world, is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as a Christian, you can't argue with that. That's a fact. That's the most significant event ever. And we have the privilege to celebrate that every single day. Not just one day on what I call Resurrection Sunday, because I don't want to give Easter its due. Because that what that stands for. But we celebrate one day. But we can celebrate all the time. And we'd all agree that is the most significant event in the life of the world. Not not only people who aren't Christians, they would disagree with us. But we even know, for them, it was the most significant event in the history of the world. The death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it provided, obviously, a way for man to be rightly related with God. Once again, what an event. And we would also agree that Pentecost was a significant event in the life of the church. In fact, it was the birthday of the church when the Holy Spirit came just as Jesus had promised and indwelt believers. Now, it was an effect, obviously, of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was the beginning of the fulfilling of that promise that Jesus had given, that that would happen. So, obviously, we would agree that the Pentecost was a significant event in the history of the church. Well, what would be the... the, the you could, you could put Jesus and the Pente- Pentecost together because it kind of all goes together, but whether it's the second or third most significant event in the church, what would you think of that? What, what comes to your mind when you think about the most, another significant event in the history of the church? You'd rank right below those two. What comes to your mind? Well, whatever comes to your mind, I'm going to put something in it. Okay? The next most significant event in the history of the church is the conversion of Saul. And I make no bones about that. We can debate it all day, but I'm going to win. Why? Because the Bible makes sure we don't miss it. Think about this. The conversion of Saul is mentioned three times in the book of Acts. One here by Luke, who tells this is what happened. Two other times when we get Paul, Saul, who became Paul, he gives this testimony. It takes a significant amount of Acts, a portion of Acts, as he three times we see this. We see him give his testimony about his conversion. We see his conversion take place. We get a little more detail in, in ch- it's chapter 9, chapter 22, and chapter 6. A little more detail in the other two chapters than we might have here. But it's significant. Because what happened was when Saul was converted and became Paul, he took the gospel to the Gentiles like never before. In fact, it's through him that that's where the, the gospel got. We know in mass to the Gentiles and he through his three missionary journeys and eventually his time in Rome he took the gospel at that time to the known world I mean the conversion of Saul who became Paul is a significant event in the life of the church in the life of God's plan or his mission in our world we, we, we can't argue with that just think we have 13 God saw fit that we'd have 13 of his letters to early Christians in the New Testament would you all agree with me that this is a significant event in the life of the church? You bet it is. And I don't think you could argue there's a more significant event outside the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and Pentecost than this event because of how God used the Apostle Paul. This is significant. And we don't want to miss, I don't want us to miss what's going on here this morning. So as we study Saul's conversion here in verses 1 through 9 of Acts 9, my prayer is that you will be both challenged and encouraged by what the Lord does in the life of Saul, so much so that you allow him to do much the same in your life. Well, as we approach these uh, nine verses here, let's remember wh- how we got here. All right, we're going through the book of Acts, and I like to briefly always remind us where we are in the context of the book of Acts because context gives us meaning, right? Meaning is dictated by context. So we don't want to take chapter 9, verses 1 and 9 out of context. Let's get in context. So we saw Jesus give uh, this command and uh, told the apostles to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes on them. And he's going to give them power to take the gospel all over the world to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And we've seen that happen through the book of Acts. We, We saw the Pentecost came, so the Holy Spirit came. And many people, Jews, were converted. They came to trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And that was in Jerusalem and not too long the gospel goes out to Judea and with that comes persecution and remember the ramping up of persecution in the book of Acts it starts with threats it goes to imprisonment and then we have a murder of Christians it just ramps up and with that ramping up also it enabled and was the catalyst to take the gospel further into the world because right after that they were scattered and they go to to Samaria and here we have this guy named Philip And he's having a successful ministry in Samaria. And God calls him to go to the desert in Gaza where nobody is. And we talk about how crazy that must have seemed to him. To go where nobody is. He's with all these people and they're coming to Christ. The ministry is flourishing. And he goes to Gaza. And God had sent him there for an appointment with a man from Ethiopia. So that he might hear the gospel and respond and take the gospel back to Africa. I mean God's on a move, on the move. This is the mission of God, and he is about his mission. So immediately following this, this conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch, we have the conversion of Saul, who will take the gospel to the Gentiles. And we should all say thank you. Should you say thank you? Outside of probably Anthony and and and, and Bizan, who the gospel probably got through through the Ethiopian church history shows that this Ethiopian went back and churches were started and planned and spread and maybe even got all the way throughout Africa. We don't know completely. But we could probably all say thank you God for this. Thank you that you got the, the gospel to the Gentiles because as far as I know we all are Gentiles in this room. Thank you God for doing that. It's significant. John MacArthur helps us understand the significance of Saul's conversion when he states, The conversion of this man was the pivot on which the future of the church turned. And it was fitting that because of the massive importance of his conversion, that it be unique conversion because he was such a unique individual. By birth a Jew, by conviction a Pharisee, by citizenship a Roman, by education a Greek, and then by grace a Christian. He became a missionary, a theologian, an evangelist, a pastor, a teacher, a preacher, an organizer, a leader, a thinker, a statesman, a fighter, and a lover all at the same time. Significant, wasn't it? And God used this man in great ways. And I, and I look to the Apostle Paul when I look at his letters and I look the way that he handled difficulties in churches and the way he handled success in the churches and all those things. I look to him as he, looks, as he looked to Jesus... I follow him as he follows Christ, as Paul would say, for, for a lot of wisdom and for, for what does God want me to do in certain situations. I, I, look, I, go and I look at his, his letters because he's dealing with churches. And God's called me to be a shepherd in a church with other shepherds in this church. And I'm thankful for the way that God used Paul. Well, who, what else do we know about this man named Saul who became Paul? Well, he was from a place called Tarsus, Tarsus. And uh, it was a significant city at the time, and one of the reasons it was a significant city is because of the university was there. It would be like um, uh, in our time a Harvard or a Yale or a Princeton, Uh, and none none of you probably heard your university mentioned there. I'm sorry, but that was kind of the the elite of elite. One of the there's like three or four different universities in the world at the time that were elite, and this was one of them. Um, It was in Asia Minor. Um, Saul's father, who lived there, obviously with him, was a, a Roman citizen and a Jew by birth. Uh, his, his father was no doubt a Pharisee, and we learn this about Paul. He'll tell us this, in which Saul follows along in his father's footsteps. Look with me here. I'll, I'll pull up on the screen so you so you can follow along with me in Philippians three five. Paul giving his testimony, in a sense, about his background in Philippians 3. He says, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. This guy was as pure a Jew as you could get. And to a Jew, to be able to trace your lineage and have to say all these things, the right education, the right background, the right bloodline was huge because that's what made you right with God. And he could say this, now he, later in Philippians 3, which I love and when we went through Philippians, you saw he basically takes his spiritual resume, wads it up and throws it away because it's worthless when it comes to really knowing God. But he's saying, hey, if anybody has anything to, to boast about, look at what I got. Look at my resume. This guy was a pure Jew. He also studied under, we find out in a couple other places in the New Testament, under a guy named Gamaliel, the best of all and the most respected of all teachers in Israel. After Nicodemus, who in John chapter 3, it says he was the teacher of the law. After Nicodemus came Gamaliel, and he was the teacher of the law, and Paul studied under him. And this guy had the best of education. And, and you see he mentions this actually in Galatians 1.14. He's again talking about before he came to know Christ. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. I mean, he was the top of the class when it came to Jewish young men. And even as I mentioned before, there was good chance that um, Saul was in the synagogues that Stephen was preaching in and probably was in debates with Stephen um, because he was the top guy that you would want to bring in to get in debate with some goofy Christian. That was Saul. Um, And how zealous was he? Well, later on in Philippians 3, going back to Philippians, it says, as to zeal a persecutor of the church if you really loved yahweh as far as the jews were concerned at this time you would be a persecutor of the church you would hate the church and all that it stood for and saul hated the church and we're going to see that so with this in mind let's look at acts chapter 9 there in verses 1 and 2 now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Saul was angry. Really angry. He wanted to kill all Christians. He wanted to wipe them out. Notice how he puts it in his own words. In Acts 26, 9 through 11. So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, prison, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. You remember him with, there at Stephen? They laid their coats at his feet. I believe that Saul was the ringleader of that whole stoning of Stephen. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme and being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. Notice he said he was furiously enraged. Now where would you rate that on a scale of 1 to 10 of being mad? That would be like 11. I mean, he is furiously enraged. He hates Jesus, he hates those who follow him. He wants to wipe this crazy sect off the face of the earth. That's how angry he is. So why was he so angry? I mean, what had gotten this guy's, you know, life that got him so angry? Well, I believe if you go back, and we've studied this, you go back and you look at what was happening with Stephen... And Stephen has taken the gospel to the Hellenist. Now, who were the Hellenist Jews? They were the ones who didn't live in Jerusalem, who spoke Greek. And he's going to the synagogues, and he's preaching the gospel, and people are responding. And like I said, most likely, Saul is there. And he's seeing people respond to the gospel. And all of a sudden, the thing he has given his life to is starting to crumble. And somebody else is, just like the, the, the Simon the Magician, somebody's taking his power. Somebody's taking his people. And he's mad about it. He's angry. He's furiously enraged. He, he has, wants nothing to do with this new sect that's coming along and taking away his brothers, Hellenist Jews. Not just Jews, but Hellenist Jews. And Stephen was one of the Hellenist Jews. And he didn't like that either. He was angry. Well, Jews, Jerusalem wasn't enough for him, though. I mean, that wasn't enough to, 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 to kill Christians and, and put them in prison in Jerusalem. He wanted all Christians dead. So he gets authority, he gets permission from the high priest to go to Damascus and let his rage be carried out on Christians in Damascus. Now, what do we know about Damascus? Well, it was 150 miles north of Jerusalem. There's about, there, sources say there's about 150,000 people in Damascus at this time, which is a very large city. You think 150,000, that's not big of city, that, that big of a city. you got many cities bigger than that in the United States. Well, this was a big city, and, and it had lots of commerce, lots of people who came there from all over the world um, to Damascus. And now the gospel's gotten there, and Saul's heard about it, and he's going to go stamp it out. Look at ver- that phrase there in verse 2. So if he found any belonging to the way. Specifically notice that phrase, the way. This would be a great summary of what Christians believed based upon what Jesus said. Remember in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus said he was the way. And all throughout the New Testament we see this. That he is the only way to be made right with God. No one comes to the Father but through him. He's the way. Now, that would be a a term of endearment for all of us Christians who believe that and who know that's what Jesus taught. And that's the truth. But it was also used as a derogatory term of sarcasm toward Christians. Oh, they're the people who think they've got the only way. See, pluralism had already swept throughout the world and always has been here. People, Well, you know, if you believe what you believe with all your heart, if you believe what you believe, it's going to be okay. Well, Jesus came on scene and said, there's only one way. And Christians believed that. So to say they were of the way was also a sarcastic put-down of Christians. Because they did believe that Jesus was the only way. Well, now look with me in verse 3. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. What was this light? Now many people who are skeptical of the Bible... They begin to go through the Bible and they begin to make excuses for different things. You know, when Jesus walked on water, really there was like stones out there. He was just stepping on the stones. And although when you go and you see these instances of Jesus, he was far offshore. It's funny how all those stones were just put purposely and perfectly for him to step across these stones and what's even more amazing is that peter was drowning in this bit much of water um and that's a gra- even a greater miracle isn't it but they make up things to try to explain away amazing things and we'll say all oh, that was just the sunlight because it was the noon day well let's let listen to what paul has to say about what this light was all about in acts 26:13, in his own words he says at midday o king I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. He says it's brighter than the sun. He says it wasn't the sun. Of course the rest of the context shows us it definitely wasn't the sun, S-U-N. Instead it was the sun, S-O-N. It was God the sun. It was Jesus. And notice what the Lord says uh, um, what, what happens after this in verse 4. So after he sees this light brighter than the sun, he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he, and he said, who are you? And he said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. And notice that, th- that the Lord Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Saul had been ravaging the church and dragging, as we, we, we learn there at the end of chapter or at the beginning of chapter 8, it says that, it, verse 3, But Paul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. He was persecuting men and women who followed Jesus physically. And Jesus is saying that when you persecute one of my followers, one of my children, in reality you're persecuting me. Uh, Jesus wasn't there physically, was he? He, he, had already ri- he had already risen, he had already in his glorified Uh, body had ascended to heaven and he said why are you persecuting me he learned this truth that when we come to know Christ we're part of his body and he's the head and when we're part of his body and people are persecuting us they're really persecuting Jesus so don't be so offended when people persecute you they're really persecuting our Lord and we should be offended not that they're persecuting us But they're persecuting Jesus, ultimately. And he wanted Saul to understand this. Saul was not just up against a bunch of Christians. He was up against the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who are in Christ are part of his team. And he takes up for them. Someone has said, Saul was persecuting the body of Christ on earth, and the head complained from heaven. And boy, did he complain. He was up, Saul was up against the creator of the universe. He was up against the mission of God. As Lewis Johnson uh, says uh, this concerning Saul, he said he was fighting the march of God through human history. I mean, whose side would you want to be on here? Saul's or Jesus's? The mission of God. In other words, Saul was in big trouble. He was fighting a losing battle. There's an irony here I want you to see. In fact, one pastor entitled his sermon very something, something to this effect. The hunter became the hunted. You guys see that? Saul was hunting down Christians. He was the hunter. And all of a sudden, he was being hunted. And he didn't like it. Because this hunter never missed. This hunter always got his game. And that's what's happening here. Saul was not quite sure who it was at this point. Um, so he wisely inquires in verse 5, Who are you, Lord? Now, a lot of people will make, it, Lord could mean Lord in the sense that he's God. It could also mean sir. We don't know for sure. And the context really doesn't tell us at this point. We know later, obviously, he's, it's a Lord like, Lord, you are God. Okay? But right here, we're not sure. I think as we move down here, we, he becomes more sure. But it shows at least that Saul is humbled. Now think about that. This guy had the greatest education. Everybody loved Saul. They would call him in for all the debates. They'd put him up in the nicest hotels. They'd pick him up in the, in, in the limo chariots. I mean, this guy had it all. And I guarantee his ego was big. And you see that. He's going to take down everybody by himself. And all of a sudden, this light appears and speaks to him. He says, why are you persecuting me? And he is humbled. He's knocked to the ground. And that says a lot about what's happening already in Saul's life. The Lord was getting through. Then the Lord answers, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Just in case Saul was not clear, the Lord made it clear. It's Jesus. Jesus, the one that he thought was most certainly dead, was indeed alive and was gloriously appearing to him. I mean, think about where the resurrection was said to take place right outside of Jerusalem. And all the authorities at the time, all they had to do was what? To cancel out everything we've ever thought. Just produce a body. That's all they had to do. And the disciples in Jerusalem where it happened, with the greatest threat, they would say, He is risen. He is risen. And all they had to do was present a body. And they couldn't do it. In fact, there's there's a movie coming out. Um, from the the side of this, this, uh, like a Roman guard, and he's out hunting for the body of Jesus. I'm looking forward to seeing it. Um, And and the the thing that happens, he can't find it. No one can find it. And, And here Saul was sure that it was a hoax. He had believed they had stolen the body, they were hiding it. And now he no longer believes it's a hoax. He believes that Jesus Christ is alive, and he's just met him. And everyone who comes to faith in Jesus must come to this realization. Jesus is alive and he reigns over all. Amen. Now let me point out for those who have a King James Version or a New King James Version, you will notice that verse 5 also includes this phrase. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now if you don't have a King James or a New King James, it will not be in there. <gasps> easy, 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 easy. We're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. It is not in the oldest manuscripts, the ones closest to the originals. uh, That phrase, at least it's not here in Acts chapter 9. However, it is found in all the manuscripts in Acts chapter 26. So the account, it's there most likely what happened, we don't know for sure, someone, when they're they're, they're recording Acts and and copying it down, they knew what was coming up in chapter 26 and they just added that because they knew it happened. It did happen. It was said because Saul says it was said. But he doesn't say it here. He says it in Acts 26, verse 14. I'll bring up that for you. And when he had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. What in the world does it mean when Jesus says this all? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Well, a goad was a stick used to poke an ox, all right, to get the ox moving. That was a goad to goad him to get him moving. You poke him, and, and sometimes futilely though, an ox would kick at the goad, trying to get off this goad off of him for poking him. That's a goad. Um, we used to, uh, we had a defensive coordinator in college. We had a nose guard um, who was always, he was kind of like Saul. He would seem always angry, all right? But that's a good nose guard, all right? And he would get down in front of that center, and he'd be just foaming the mouth and yelling at him and stuff, just crazy guy, you know? But he had, he had a fuse about this short, and he got more 15-yard penalties, I think, than anybody I've ever seen in football. And our defensive coordinator said, Keith, don't you dare let them get your goad. Everybody says, What's this goad? What is a goad? And then he explained to it, a goad is when they, when they start poking at you and it gets to you and you do things you don't want to do. That's a goad. It's poking at you. And what's happening here with Saul is that God is using goads to get at him, to get to his heart, to bring conviction, to, to get to his conscience about what he's doing and what he believes. Now, basically, Jesus is saying you cannot prevent... The conviction of the Holy Spirit working out in you, Saul. It's hard for you to kick against those goads. It's impossible. You're never going to get it off of them. Because the Holy Spirit's beginning to work in your life. And one of those goads God used in Saul's life was Stephen. Saul was there when the following was said about Stephen before he began to speak with the Sanhedrin. And fixing their gaze on him, this is the Sanhedrin, which, when Saul was there, we know this later on because of what happens, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel, including Saul. This is one of the things I believe that God used as a goad to start to get to Saul as he saw this man peacefully. And we talked about what this meant. We're not for sure, um, but when the angels showed up, usually they were there to exclaim the glory of God, and that's exactly what Stephen did right after this. But there was something about him. And Saul also heard Stephen masterfully use the scripture to show that they were guilty of the very things they were accusing him of. And and, and Saul appreciated someone who could use the Old Testament because he understood the Old Testament. And he appreciated that, and God was using that to begin to get to Saul. And then possibly the strongest of all the pokes from the goat of Stephen was that the, the way in which Stephen died, and Saul was there to witness it and hear him say this in Acts 7.60. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. What kind of man would ask for forgiveness to those who are killing him through stoning to death? Saul was there. He saw it all. He was giving hearty hearty approval, but he saw this. He heard this. And now the Lord was answering this prayer in the life of Saul. Think about that. Stephen's prayer is now being answered in the life of Saul. Because Saul is getting ready to be forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, again, I, I'm, I'm, you, you all know I'm an emotional kind of being. God just wired me that way, right? So right now I've got chill bumps all the way up and down my arm to think about what God is doing here. And wh- whatever it is, your hair stands on end. Something's ought to be happening, all right? Well, this is an amazing thing that God is doing. No doubt there were other goads obviously the Lord was using uh, as the church continued to explode and possibly the fact that a multitude of people were coming to faith in Jesus Christ caused Saul to doubt if what he believed was right and if he was on the right side of things. Christianity had spread, we know for sure, 150 miles north because that's where he's going. To the city it spread so much that he had to go and take care of it. God was probably using that as a goad. Whatever the goads were, the Lord said to Saul, your kicking and fighting against the work of the Holy Spirit is in vain. It's futile. It's hard for you to kick against the goat, Saul. You're not going to win this battle. I'm coming after you. You're being hunted now by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look with me at verse 6. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. Now in the King James, it also includes the beginning of verse 6. Saul asking, Lord, what do you want me to do? Once again, this is not in the old, oldest of, uh, manuscripts. But, don't worry, it's in Acts 22. When Saul again gives his testimony of his conversion. We see this in Acts 22.10. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? So it's there, and, and most likely we just add it in here so that, pe- that the stories would, that it would help people before they maybe, maybe keep them reading maybe to Acts 22. But it, it, he, Paul did say that. It shows that Paul's heart had been changed. He was now submissive to the Lord, which is a sign of conversion. Those who have been changed by Jesus, they want to submit to him. He said, all right, what shall I do, Lord? You're you're Jesus. Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus. Okay, Lord, what do I do? What do I do? And those whose heart has been changed will ask that question. They'll be submissive. What do I do now? I'm in. We talked about that. Last week, are you an I'm in kind of Christian? That's the only kind of Christians that there are. Their heart is they want to submit to the Lord. Do we always submit to the Lord? No, but their heart wants to. And that's what we see here with the conversion of Saul. Jesus tells him, get up and enter the city and it will be told you what you must do. Now look at verse 7. I see in verse 6 there. It says, the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. I would probably be speechless too at this point and you would be too. They heard the voice, but they didn't see what he saw. And Obviously, we will see later, this is a specific, special call. Not, not necessarily his salvific, his salvific call that he was being saved and changed, but his special call to the Gentiles. But only Saul saw what he saw, but everyone heard. And it would leave anyone speechless. And, and it says that, um, so next, what does Saul do? We you know, These guys are speechless, they don't know what to do. They, they didn't see it, but they heard it. Look what Saul did, verses 8 and 9. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing, and leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and He was there three day, was, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. What did he do? Saul obeyed, which again cho- shows his changed heart. There's no other way to explain that. The Lord had broken into his life and changed his heart. And made him one of his sons. Such that he was humbled and willing to, what, what do you want me to do? And then when he's told what to do, he does it. Which again, is char- is, a, is a characteristic of those whose heart has been changed. Those who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, who have truly been converted, who have been given a new heart. Their life is characterized by obedience. Notice what I said. It's characterized by obedience. We all know we don't obey all the time, right? It's not about perfection, it's about direction. And that's evidence that God has worked in our life, that God is working in our life, that he is present in our life and has given us a new heart. And we see that. And, and you say, well, you know, you're kind of pulling some stuff out. I'm not pulling anything out because we keep going here. You won't miss it. In the next few weeks, you won't miss that. His heart has been changed. And now God is going to begin to build him back up and equip him to be used for all that he would use him for, partly to get the gospel to us. Amazing what God does here. Well, so what? So what? I've told you about my friend who's a pastor for many, many years. He's still pastoring. And after his, one of his first better sermons he ever had as a young pastor, he was probably 23 years old, feeling really good standing by the back door like any good pastor would, right? Waiting for everybody to tell how great a sermon he had preached. This older lady comes up to him and shakes his hand and says, Hi, Jeff. Said, Hi, Hi Miss Jones or whatever her name was. And she just said... So what? So what? All this information, all these amazing things that you've told us about what God is doing and what is in the Scripture. So what? What difference does it make? What always makes a difference? So let me give you the so what for this morning. So what? First of all, Jesus seeks and saves the lost. He is the hunter. That's why Jesus said He came, that He seeks and saves the lost. The Scripture nowhere ever says that man seeks after God. It says they don't seek after God. Now, they may secondarily seek after God after He first seeks after them. And Jesus seeks and saves the lost. And we see that in the Scripture. He's hunting down Saul. And He's going to get him. He's going to save Saul from the penalty of his sin. Secondly, Jesus can reach anyone how bad can you get I mean Saul's resume when it came to being in favor with God through the Lord Jesus Christ was as bad as it could possibly be I mean he was breathing threats he was murderous he was enviously enraged at Christians trying to kill them all he's trying to wipe them all out he hated Jesus he hated all those who followed Jesus and yet God saved him and you may be here, and I hear this often when I talk to people about the gospel. I hear people say, well, you don't know what I've done. You don't know how bad it's been. And, and I may not know how bad it's been. I may not have time to hear how all bad it's been. But as a, greater, a greatest sinner as that person is, or you might be, Jesus is a greater Savior. He's not intimidated by our sin. He's not intimidated by our past. He came to seek and save. That was lost, even the worst. And Paul, when he writes to Timothy, says, He saved me, the worst, the worst of sinners, the worst of all, so that he would use my testimony one day to reach others. That's basically what he says to Timothy. That's why he did that in his life. So as bad as you think you are, Jesus can save you. He can reach anyone. Thirdly, Jesus uses his people as goads. He uses us, and I don't want you, He uses his poking sticks. That's how God uses us. You know that? He uses us as goes. He uses our lives, just like he did Stevens, to minister to others who don't know him, to begin to prick at their conscience, to prick at their heart, to begin to cause them to doubt what they believe, to begin to humble them, to begin to have them think and consider the things of Jesus. God uses us like that. God used people in my life like that. Most of you knew I'm a pastor's kid, and that's worse than the deacon's kids. All right? Or in our case, elders' kids too. All right. And and and, and, and I knew all about Jesus, but I didn't know him. I had, all, I had his back of his baseball card memorized. But I didn't know him. And God used people in my little church in Russell, Kentucky on the Ohio River. People a little bit older than me, my parents, my parents' friends, to begin to prick and poke in my life. And bring conviction to someone who thought he was a Christian. And bring conviction in my life to show I wasn't. God used those people. I got a telephone call about four years ago from a guy named Darren Anberge, And he was a backup outside linebacker on the college team I played for in Georgetown, Kentucky. And Darren called me. I hadn't heard from him since I was in college. A long time. He said, Brian, I just want to let you know I became a Christian this week. Darren didn't know the Lord when we were in college. He was running from the Lord, made fun of me and those who were following Jesus. And I can tell you this, when I was in college, I was a very immature believer. I thought I was mature because I was comparing myself to everybody who was less than mature than me instead of comparing myself to the Lord Jesus Christ. But I was a believer. I loved Jesus. And he says, Brian, and I just want to let you know because of your faithful witness. I remembered that. I remember that. And I was so humbled. That God would use my immaturity of following Jesus like that. He used me as a goad. I'm thankful for that. And he can use all of us as goads. Will we let him? Will we pursue him so that people see us pursuing him and he uses us to bring conviction in their life? Fourthly, Jesus changes enemies into followers. He changes enemies. Romans 5.10 says that we're enemies of God when we're without Jesus. He changes those who are enemies of him into friends and into followers of him. He changed their life so much that the path that they were once on and following after, they no longer follow after. Do they, yes, sometimes slip up and sin? You bet they do. But they're now changed their direction and they're following after Jesus. Those who were enemies become followers. And I know so many of you all in here, and your testimony is just like that, isn't it? God changed you from being an enemy to a follower. So here's my encouragement. By the grace of God, the power of the Holy Spirit in us, let's follow hard after Jesus. Let's follow him hard so he can use us just like he's going to use Saul for the rest of Acts to reach the world for the gospel. What else do we have to share but the greatest news ever? And that news is those who are sinful and separated from God, who don't glorify him with their life, and deserve hell and death because that's the wages of sin. That He sent Jesus to die in their place to pay the penalty for their sin. For our sin. That if we would turn from trusting in our sin and ourself, and turn and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, He would save us from our sin too. And make us right with Him. And make us His sons and daughters. If you've never done that, my prayer and my challenge to you, my impl- I implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ this morning. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you the clarity of your word and the power of your word. And Lord, I thank you for the very fact that you lovingly and graciously pursue us through Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray we'd never get over that that you came after us when we didn't even want you to. Lord, thank you for your grace. Lord, I pray you would use us to be goads in the life of others. That you, by your grace, might win them just like you did us. Help us now, Lord, as we sing in celebration of your grace and as we partake of the Lord's Supper in celebration of your grace too. In Jesus' name, amen.